Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to our fifth week, fifth week, fifth week in Ecclesiastes. I've lost track. That's a bad sign. Uh, Before we jump into our series for this morning and getting back into Ecclesiastes, a few things to let you know about. One is I'd like to introduce a new member to the church. Uh, Many of you know this person. She served in the back. She was running the computer a few weeks ago, helping things show up on the screen, like lyrics and sermon slides and all that. Helps in that way. And she's part of a small group that I'm a part of, and uh, Rose and I help lead. Jeanette Fountain. Jeanette is sitting right here, and she said I had to come to her instead of her coming forward. So, but here's the deal. I still get to make her stand. So... (laughs) Jeanette, uh, on, on our membership form here, it says, because of your profession of faith in Jesus Christ and testimony through baptism, along with your commitment to the ministry and mission of New Harvest, I am delighted to offer you the right hand of fellowship as a member of our church. Here's what Jeanette said about New Harvest and in her membership form. She said, this church feels like home. The outreach that occurs through New Harvest is exactly how I've always wanted church to feel like, reaching both those within and outside of our church. I promise to continue to serve New Harvest, praying and supporting the leaders, congregants, and community. I promise to continue to guide my children toward Christ by example. I'm so grateful to call New Harvest Church my church home. Would you welcome Jeanette as a member? I had the privilege of marrying Mark and Jeanette. This was... uh, Two years ago, May 3rd, 7th, no, it was a good guess, now I look like a fool. I knew it was the first week of March, I had one of seven numbers to choose from. A couple other things to let you know about, we have next Sunday morning, right after we meet in here, we're going to have a newcomer's lunch. Newcomer is anybody who's new, if you think of yourself as new, you're welcome to come. If you got an email, or if you did not get an email from me, and you're new to New Harvest, if you didn't get an email, email from me this week, it means I don't have a way to contact you and invite you to that lunch. And we'd love for you to come. So come talk to me. Fill out a connection card. It's right in the seat in front of you. You can even scan the QR code and fill out an online one of that. So if you did not get an email from me this week, it means we want you to come, but we don't have a way to invite you. And I'd love to do that. So come talk to me on your way out. And if you, church body, know of somebody that you've invited and who's come, and you want to remind them that they're invited to this lunch, that would be great as well. That'll be next Sunday, right after we meet in here. We'll meet in the coffee shop and share lunch together. It's just a great way for you to hear about the church, learn about what we care about, and meet some of the staff and some of the things that we're involved with, and also have an opportunity to ask questions if you'd like to as well. And then starting tonight, New Harvest Institute. You've heard me talk about this too many weeks in a row now. 65 or so people have signed up now. So that means there's like probably 130 or 40 of us in here right now. That means over half of you are missing out, okay? That means over half of you are missing out. You can go to our online bulletin. You can register for a class. We have sheets of paper to remind you to register for a class. You can register today, sign up. We have four different classes. They're going to go for four weeks, and you can sign up for one of those classes. We'd love for you to take part of it. And one of the things I know about myself is I'm a really awful hype man. Like, you don't want me to come up and, like, be your hype person, right? And so here's this great event, I promise you. 
It's going to be great. No matter what class you go to, it's going to be great. And I'm not a great hype person. So all I can tell you is you're missing out if you don't sign up and join one of these classes. That's the best hype I can give you for New Harvest Institute. Starting tonight, 6 o'clock, register if you haven't done so already. We'd love to have you. Well, we're in our fifth week, as I was saying, in Ecclesiastes, a series that we're calling The Search for Meaning, studying this book written by Solomon and his focus, which I think exemplifies most of how we live our lives as well. And I think it would be fair to say most of the books and the movies that we enjoy are about a character who longs for a life of more meaning and fulfillment and overcomes adversity in order to achieve their goal. And this is true of fictional stories. Think about the Lord of the Rings and Frodo Baggins carrying that ring for nine hours of movie or three books forever and ever to Mount Doom. And this is also true of real life stories like the movie Miracle, which is based on the 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team beating the Soviet Union. And it's true of a movie like Rudy, about Rudy Rudiger, who is a Notre Dame football player. We're looking for something, and we'll overcome overwhelming adversity in order to achieve it. And those are the stories that captivate us and grab a hold of us that we remember forever. And you could think through, think of some of your favorite movies. I guarantee you it's about a character who's longing to achieve something and overcoming adversity to get it. Now, for example, one of the greatest movies ever is about a guy who's in his 20s and his life is kind of wandering aimlessly. But one day at work, he lays eyes on a woman who he's just utterly captivated by. And then he doesn't see her. And he decides that he's going to chase after her. He's going to find out where she is. And he travels across the country to tell her of his undying love for this woman that he laid eyes on once. You might think I'm talking about Sleepless in Seattle, or You've Got Mail, or When Harry Met Sally, or The Notebook. Some of these, you know, famous romantic comedies. But no, I'm talking about one of the greatest movies ever, Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> and here's, here's a picture of one of my favorite movies ever. And if you thought first week I shared about Napoleon Dynamite that I couldn't stoop any lower. Well, here you go. Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> Dumb and Dumber is about a movie following Lloyd Christmas and his roommate Harry as they travel across the country because Lloyd Christmas got a briefcase that Mary Swanson left at the airport as he dropped her off. And Mary Swanson captivated Lloyd Christmas to the point where he got that briefcase and he wanted to be the hero to bring it back to her in Aspen, California, or Colorado, and to deliver that Samsonite briefcase to her. And some of you are picking up on some of my jokes from the movie. Some of you are like, I don't know what he's talking about. Uh, but it turned out that that briefcase was filled with millions of dollars. And eventually they opened it up and discovered it, and they uh, filled it with IOUs later and said those were just as good as money. But he returned the briefcase and told Mary Swanson of his undying love, and it turned out she was married. She was married. And so the search continued, and the, the movie actually ends very realistically. It's Ecclesiastes. They're on their next search as the movie ends. They never really get, he never really gets 
what he wants. Well, growing up, Dumb and Dumber was one of my favorite movies, to be quite honest. If you got my brother and I in a room, we could go for hours quoting Dumb and Dumber lines from the movie. And I remember very vividly in the kitchen one day, my brother and I are quoting Dumb and Dumber back and forth. And my dad walks into the kitchen and he's like, oh, that movie. Oh, I just don't get it. It's just so dumb. And my brother and I turned to my dad and we're like, dad, that's the point of the movie. Like, You've got it. It's hilarious, okay? So you'd have, you'd have to have known my dad to really understand how my dad could totally miss the point of that movie. But uh, it was, you know, fairly hilarious to tell my dad that, yes, this is a dumb movie. Well, okay, joking aside, and whether you like the movie Dumb and Dumber or have ever seen it or know anything about it, all of us are kind of pulled into and captivated by these stories of people that are willing to overcome something to have a life of significance and meaning. But oftentimes the way we in society talk about pursuing a life of meaning is internally. We actually have a term for this. We have like a food pyramid of what are the deepest longings and desires we have at the top of the food pyramid is self-actualization, which is this kind of like vague term for like an internal peace that we have about life. That's what we're striving toward. Well, self-actualization and finding meaning in and of yourself, I would say, is very empty. And one of the things that, as I was studying this, I came across a, a form of therapy put together by Viktor Frankl. And here's what he says about self-actualization. He says, what is called self-actualization is not an attainable aim at all. For the simple reason that the more one would strive for it, the more he would miss it. In other words, self-actualization is possible only as a side effect of self-transcendence. Now, he's using a lot of big words there. But what he's saying is that meaning in life comes only as you seek something beyond yourself. It doesn't come by looking inside yourself. You have to look beyond yourself. And as we've studied Ecclesiastes, we've joined in that search with Solomon as he's looked beyond himself at all sorts of different things to hopefully give his life meaning and satisfaction. And it's continued to come up empty. And we're going to continue that search for meaning today. Ecclesiastes 6. If you have your Bible, you could turn there. Ecclesiastes 6. Ecclesiastes is just shortly after Psalms and Proverbs. Then comes Ecclesiastes 6. It's only 12 verses long. So we're going to study the whole thing today. And so Solomon says, beginning verse 1, I have seen another evil under the sun, and it weighs heavily on mankind. God gives some people wealth, possessions, and honor so that they lack nothing, their hearts desire. But God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them, and strangers enjoy them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. A man may have a hundred children and live many years, yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. It comes without meaning. It departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest Then does that man, even if he lives a thousand years twice over, but fails to enjoy his prosperity, do not go, do not all go to the same place. 
Everyone's toil is for their mouth, yet their appetite is never satisfied. What advantage have the wise over fools? What do the poor gain by knowing how to conduct themselves before others? Better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Whatever exists has already been named, and what humanity is has been known. No one can contend with someone who is stronger. The more words, the less meaning. And how does that profit anyone? For who knows what is good for a person in life during the few and meaningless days they pass through like a shadow? Who can tell them what will happen under the sun after they are gone? This is the word of the Lord. And as we've talked about, Ecclesiastes is at times a dark book. And chapter 6 is like the peak of Ecclesiastes' darkness. This is the peak. And before we get into the passage, there's just one thing that really is striking to me and is worth addressing. He mentions just in the first few verses a stillborn baby and how it would be better off to be a stillborn baby. And before we even talk about what he's meaning, I just want to address the reality that 15, about 15% of pregnancies end in some form of a miscarriage, including a stillborn baby. And it's much higher than you might imagine. 20 to 25% of women have gone through that. And it's something that we really do, I would say, a pretty poor job of talking about out loud. And as immediately as I was reading through this and studying this, I thought of the many families in our church over just the last few years who have had to walk that difficult road of immense loss. And as I was thinking about that, I thought of Ecclesiastes 3, which we studied just a few weeks ago, which says there's a season for everything. And it highlighted blessings and difficult things, that you go through both of those. And the point that Solomon was making is that God, who is over all of it, is weaving it together to draw you close to him. So how do you explain why God would allow something as difficult as a miscarriage or a stillborn child or any other immense adversity you could think of. And I don't have an answer for that. I don't have an answer for why would God allow, what is the purpose of this? I don't know. But I I immediately, as I think about wrestling with some of the difficult things that you all face, I think of John 11. And Jesus has a good friend named Lazarus, who dies. And Jesus is informed about Lazarus dying and he weeps. Jesus, who mere moments later would raise Lazarus from the dead, is weeping about his friend. Jesus, who knew what was going to happen immediately after, that he would raise Lazarus from the dead and that he had the power to do so, weeped over his friend and the loss and the grief that he felt. And just a few verses earlier than that, when Jesus found out that Lazarus was sick, he replied and he said, it is for the glory of God. And so somehow both of these things are true, that the things that make no sense to us, God has a purpose in. What that purpose is sometimes is impossible for us to know. And then at the same time as that there is a purpose that Jesus weeps, he walks alongside and walks with us through these difficult things in life that sometimes make no sense. So why did Solomon bring up this idea here in chapter 6 to make a comparison 
about this reality of a stillborn birth. Well, what he's highlighting is life without God. And he says a man can have all of these blessings, live a long time, have a big family, have lots of wealth. But what worth is it if life is just this continuing endless frustration? He said it'd be better off if you were born as a stillborn child. You can, you can circumvent, you can go around the difficulty that you're about to face in this life, if that's all that life is. And so what he's doing is highlighting life without God. Life without God is all of Ecclesiastes 6. Solomon takes on the perspective of an atheist and tells us about the end of that pursuit. And so he does this in a few different ways. He says at the beginning of this chapter, a life without God means that nothing satisfies Nothing satisfies. He says in verse 2, God gives some people wealth, possessions, and honor, so they lack nothing their hearts desire, but God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them. Nothing satisfied. And this isn't a new point. Solomon's made this point over and over in just about every chapter of Ecclesiastes. In chapter 1, he said, I have seen all the things that are under the sun, and all of them are meaningless, that nothing satisfies. And so Solomon, as the teacher, is quite clearly presenting that we have been created with this need for meaning and for life to be fulfilling and for us to have satisfaction about things. But life is only fulfilling when we have purpose, significance, and value. Any other way that we try and pursue it, nothing will satisfy. And sometimes when we realize that life is unsatisfying, we look to God and say that God has somehow shorted us. He's holding back on his blessing from us. And I think what Solomon is trying to show us here, nothing satisfies because God is trying to help us see our immense need. Think back to Ecclesiastes 3. God has set eternity in the heart of man. In our hearts, God has set eternity. And so when life is unsatisfying, it's not that God is somehow pushing us away or he doesn't want to bless us. God is trying to help us recognize our need for something greater, that we've turned to things that are empty and that don't satisfy. And rather than be in this endless kind of frustration about life, Solomon says it would be better to be a stillborn child. Because then you could avoid all of this frustration and just move on to this next life. That's his comparison there that he's trying to make. And when atheists, philosophers, and thinkers are really honest, they say essentially the same thing, that this life is empty and nothing satisfies. For instance, in the early 1900s, there was a British mathematician and philosopher named Bertrand Russell, and he wrote an essay called The Free Man's Worship, where he talked about life under the sun. Pursuing life where there is no God is focused in this way. He said, man is the product of causes which had no prerision of the end they were achieving. All the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius, all are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. We are destined to extinction when when life is pursued without God. Even an atheist believes that is the end of our focus. So we might as well just get it over with, get rid of the frustration. And you might think, well, this is just a very unchristian way of thinking. 
But the Bible is full of believers who wrestle with, what is the point of this? Job and Jeremiah cursed the Lord and questioned God whether their life had any value at all. Like, for instance, Jeremiah 20, he said, Cursed be the day I was born. May the day my mother bore me not be blessed. And so sometimes you and I, when we get focused on life under the sun and life with our earthly existence, life can become very dark and difficult. And we can be like Jeremiah. It's difficult to see the Lord and what his purpose is and his value for ourselves. The weight of life's fragility can kind of weigh on us and begin to overtake us. That's life without God. And not only is it not satisfying, but maybe the other side of the same coin is that everything is fleeting. Everything is fleeting. He says this in verse 9. Better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. This too is meaningless, the chasing after the wind. And on the first week, we studied this, this word translated in the NIV to meaningless. Meaningless is, comes from the Hebrew word havel. And havel essentially means vapor or something that's fleeting or ephemeral or that sort of idea. And the example that I used was smoke was lighting a candle and blowing it out and having the smoke and trying to grab the smoke. And the smoke was very real. It was a thing. It lasted for 30 seconds or so as the candle was burning out. But the smoke, as soon as you grabbed onto it, was gone. You couldn't actually grab onto it. And that's the picture of life that Solomon has for us under the sun. Everything is fleeting. By the time you grab onto it, it's gone. And in verse 3, he says that a life of blessing here on the earth with many children and a long life, which were signs of like Hebrew blessing. These were things that they would say as like, this person is blessed because they have many children and they've lived a long time. This too, he is saying, is meaningless. It's meaningless because it's everything under the sun. It's so fleeting that it cannot satisfy In a world that exists without God, we're left to seek after things under the sun. And even the most staunch atheists would agree that finding meaning in these things is fleeting. It will never truly last long enough to ultimately satisfy it. I think even Richard Dawkins agrees with that. In the 1990s, he wrote a book and he said this about his perspective on the universe. He said, the universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect. If there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Blind, pitiless indifference. That is life under the sun, where we're all just wandering around aimlessly after things that don't matter. And the image that Solomon uses in verses 7 through 9, where he's talking about how fleeting life is, is kind of like an image of being on a treadmill. And the treadmill is life. And he says that you eat to be able to work, and then you work to be able to eat. And it's just this endless cycle where all we're doing is pursuing things that don't really matter and don't have any substance. It's this never-ending treadmill. And if you try and get off, you'll fall flat on your face. That is life under the sun, life without God. It never satisfied and everything is fleeting. And this kind of builds and builds and builds all chapter long 
until he gets to verse 12, where he asks two questions, which to me really highlight this idea, that ignorance is not bliss. In verse 12, he asks two questions. He says, for who knows what is good for a person in life during the few and meaningless days they pass through like a shadow? Who can tell them what will happen under the sun after they are gone? And the underlying assumption here in verse 12, the answer to those questions is, well, we don't. We might have a few ideas about what is good, and we might have a few ideas about what's going to happen after we pass on from this physical life. But we don't really know. We're just guessing. We might have ideas, but they're just guesses. Who really knows? We can't. We're ignorant. In all chapter long, what has Solomon been saying? That this ignorance that we have about life is not bliss. It's actually very difficult and trying and hard. And so what we long for is the Lord. Who knows what's good? Who knows what's coming? The Lord. He's the one who's in control. And that is the picture that Solomon is trying to get to us. If we want satisfaction and purpose and value in life, Solomon is saying that it comes only through the Lord. If you want a life of meaning, it comes only through the Lord. And so we often throw around this idea that ignorance is bliss. That I, don't, I don't need to know the answer. I don't want to know it. it the truth would be too hard to bear. But what Solomon has said all throughout this chapter is that that ignorance is not bliss. It is a weight, it is a burden, or we're left grasping at things under the sun that never give us any feeling of satisfaction and meaning in life. And so we're left to a life of pitiless indifference. That is life without God. But here I am in a church talking to the majority of you who would say, well, yeah, I don't want life without God. I believe in God. And even if you would say, well, I don't believe in God, well, you're, you're here at a church and you probably have at least some sort of inclination that you're seeking after something, some sort of answer to the deepest longings that you have in your life. And so you're at least open to the possibility that God might exist and that he might have a plan for you and want to be near you. And so what does Ecclesiastes 6 have to say to us? And I think what it says to us is very simple is we can believe in God and live like he does not exist. We can believe in him and live like he does not exist. And we come up with a variety of ways to give our lives meaning and purpose that's rather fleeting, I would say, to live like God doesn't. We don't need the Lord. We'll find another way to make our lives satisfactory. We could call these like pathways of meaning. And I was, as I was thinking about this, I thought, what are the ways that we try and give ourselves a story structure around our lives to help it make meaning? Because a lot of times we would, we would, if we were honest, we don't always find our meaning and our purpose and our hope in life through the Lord. We look to other things. So what are the other ways that we try and give our, ourselves meaning? And I came up with just a couple that I think are very common. And that we've talked about before. The first is the way of affirmation. And the second is opposite of that, the way of resignation. And there's a table that I put together. And if you have notes, you can kind of fill in some of the blanks there. But I'll just start with the way of affirmation. The way of affirmation, it focuses on you. It says that you can do it, Nike. Very common phrase in our society. Your position in this way of affirmation is you're the hero. 
you're the most important person in the story. And all you need in order to achieve your goals of salvation in this instance is willpower. Try harder. If you're falling short, try a little harder. And then you can get there. But this is highly focused on yourself and the shadow side of this and what eventually happens to almost everybody that focuses exclusively on life in this way is you become a narcissist. You become so focused in on yourself that your eyes turn in on your life and the only thing you can ever think about is yourself. Now, the opposite of that, you might say, well, that doesn't sound good. Well, let's try the opposite of that. The opposite of that is the way of resignation. Again, its focus is on you. You're the primary focus. But in this instance, you've been hurt. You've been wounded. You know you've fallen short. And so the anthem here is that you can't do it. You know you can't do it. You'll fail even if you try. And so your position in this instance is you're a victim. There's all sorts of external forces that are causing negative impacts on your life and you're just a a bystander to all of these horrible things that are happening to you and there's nothing you can do about it. And so salvation in this instance comes through despair and maybe even projecting that despair of look at how awful everything is. Look at how terrible my life is. I'm just a victim. Well, the shadow side to this is that eventually you get sick of being the victim and you find somebody else who likes being the victim like you and you want to be a bully and kind of push them down to kind of raise yourself up. That's the way of resignation. And I think if you looked around society, you would see both the way of affirmation and the way of resignation all the time. This is the kind of story structures that we live by to give our lives meaning and a sense of purpose and satisfaction. Well, what's the way of Jesus? The way of Jesus that I hope we here at a church want to foster and build you and lead you toward. The way of Jesus, the focus isn't on you at all. In fact, if you don't like what's happening here today, the response that I would give to you is, well, this isn't about you. It's about the Lord. The focus is on him. And the anthem that we would champion is that he can do it. We can't do it, but he can do it. In our position here, we're not the hero The hero is the Lord. The hero is Jesus. And so we want to be a disciple of his. We want to come underneath his way of living and learn from him and allow him to shape us and mold us. And salvation isn't anything that we do. It's not through despair. It's not by trying harder and having willpower. It comes through Jesus who stood in our place. We have a cross right at the top of our sanctuary so that as you walk in to this place, you can be reminded of the fact that we don't come here close to the Lord on our own accord. We do it through what Jesus has done for us. Now, the shadow side of this way, this pathway of living, of finding meaning, is that we can think that all the things that we do in order to grow in our faith become the way that we're actually saved in our faith. And so we can think religious obedience or becoming like a Pharisee are the ways in which we become acceptable to the Lord instead of through Jesus. And I think some of what Solomon has done all throughout Ecclesiastes is put this question before us. What are we going to put our faith in? If our faith is not in the Lord, we're going to seek after and grab after things that are very unsatisfactory and fleeting and that will never satisfy, that will always fall short. 
And so the secular person believes in the insignificance of the earthly existence that we have here and that life ends and this is all it is. And that's what they place their faith in, all of these various things. But we, people who want to seek the Lord, we're saying God has a purpose and a plan and I put my faith in him. But as I said, even with this path of meaning, a lot of times we're grabbing on to other things. And so I think one of the themes of Ecclesiastes as we've studied it is the emptiness of idols. The emptiness of idols is kind of the focus of Ecclesiastes. You look at all the things that Solomon has talked about, wisdom and wealth and all the different things that he said, this is what I sought after and I found out it was meaningless or empty. It was Havel. These are different ways of him talking about idols. They are things that in many ways are good and that God can use with good purposes. But idols are taking things of earthly existence and making them ultimate things. That is what an idol is. Taking something that's good, created by the Lord, often be a blessing for us and making it the ultimate thing, thereby replacing our affection. Instead of it being focused on the Lord, it's focused on the thing under the sun that's right in front of us. Tim Keller says that we, our hearts, are idol factories. We are constantly creating things in our hearts that we're drawn to under the sun that we make the ultimate thing. And we replace our affections from the Lord for those things. And we're focused on them. And as Tim Keller was writing about idols, he had this kind of diagnostic statement, a way to kind of look at our lives and examine, do I have any areas in my life that I have been drawn into and that have become idols in my life, that have replaced the Lord and have become the focal point for me. And the statement just goes like this. My life has meaning and I have worth if. And then kind of fill in the blank. My life has meaning and I have worth if. And he had a bunch of different examples. I want to just highlight five of them. Five of them that I think are probably the most common idols that we are easily drawn to. My life has meaning and I have worth if I have power and influence over others. That's the power idolatry. If I am loved and respected by fill in the blank, group of people, person, I'm longing for approval and I've made it my idol. My life has meaning and I have worth if I am being recognized for my accomplishments and I am excelling in my work. An achievement idol, longing after achievement. My life has meaning and I have worth if Mr. or Ms. Wright is in love with me. That's the relationship idolatry, placing a person far beyond where they belong. And then lastly, My life has meaning and I have worth if my political or social cause is making progress and ascending in influence and power. This is a very common one. And next year is an election year. And we'll see this come up again. It's the ideology idolatry. And you could probably think of others. My life has meaning and I have worth if all of these other things are what come into my life. But here's how idols work. Idols work this way. They say at the very beginning, as you just kind of enter in and dabble in, try to prop up this thing to become the most important thing, idols give you everything. As you first kind of embrace an idol, it feels good. It feels like, man, this is the life that I've longed for. And they don't ask for anything. 
Oh, they just, just dabble in it. But eventually, over time, over time, the idol asks for everything, and it gives you nothing. It never satisfies. It's so fleeting. At the beginning, asks for nothing, gives you everything. It feels so good. And in the end, it asks for everything, but it gives you nothing. That's idolatry. When we live like there is no God, we have to create different pathways and techniques and idols to give ourselves meaning aside from the Lord. Thinking these things will lift us up and carry us forward, and they always fall short. They're like trying to climb a ladder, but all the steps of the ladder are broken. We always end up back on the ground. We never get where we truly long for because they never provide us the meaning we want. Meaning in life is not subjective. It's not arbitrary. It is not based on your preferences or your desires. Meaning in life comes through the Lord. It comes through the Lord. And so we have to examine in our hearts the ways in which we pursue other pathways of meaning, in which we take on, idol, take on things and make them idols, what we create them in our hearts, where we turn toward them, and then we have to repent of those ways and say, God, I've been going one way and I'm choosing now to turn and face you. And so I think in the Bible, there's a bunch of different examples of the nation of Israel turning, going one way and then turning back to the Lord. And one of those examples or metaphors is the book of Hosea. The book of Hosea is a metaphor for the nation of Israel turning against the Lord, going one way, and God trying to call them back to life with him, saying, you've, you've made all these other things more important than me. Now come back to me, because they will never satisfy. And eventually, in Hosea ten twelve is this great encouragement from the Lord. It says, sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. Sow for yourselves righteousness, not sinfulness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground. Stir up the affections of your heart for the Lord, for it is time to seek the Lord. And when you do, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. Lay, lay down the idols. Lay down these other pathways of meaning. It is time to seek the Lord. Break up the fallow ground of your heart, the barren wasteland, and allow the Lord to work in your life. That's a call to repentance from the book of Hosea, but I think has great application for us here in Ecclesiastes 6. Life without God will never satisfy. It will always have fleeting meaning. And God is inviting us into life with him. Life with him where he's at the focal point, where he's at the center. And instead of turning to all these other things, we can turn to him.